Welcome to episode 7 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio, as always, by my co-host, my partner in travel, my Mm. all-around good guy, (laughs) John Scott Sloat. The introductions just get more magical every time. I get to try to mix it up a little (laughs) bit, you know? So, episode 7. Yeah. Very biblical number. We've arrived. Yeah. Yeah. So... I hope that doesn't mean that we're required to end it. You know, sometimes seven is the biblical number of perfection. That, mm. but well, seventh day of creation it never ends, so we yes, can just keep well, going. And you know, twelve is also a number of completeness. And there's always the hundred forty-four thousand. So yeah. if we're if, if we're, we get that far, we're doing something right. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to conceptualize that, but uh, I think we need to start with our update on the coronavirus. Well, actually, no, we, before we get to that, we have some uh, some housekeeping matters, right? Yeah. Right? So uh, we want to say thank you to those who have uh, reached out on social media and interacted with us, even if we still think you're wrong. We greatly appreciate you tweeting at us and engaging uh, in the conversation. Uh, thanks to those who have uh, tweeted out a recommendation to the podcast and encouraged others to listen and you can uh, you can connect with us on Twitter at v and s pod, mm-hmm. and then of course you can always email us at variousandsundrypodcast at gmail And we heard this week on Twitter from Adam in South Carolina and uh, Lee in Indiana. Yes, yes, indeed. And we got a Apple review uh, from somebody that we don't really know who it is. I don't so know who it is. That so. was exciting. He called us engaging, thoughtful, like in a coffee shop. Yeah. And uh, we went, <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe we need some uh, some coffee shop music in the background yeah, now. That'd be lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll look into that. We'll get our tech people on that. So. Um, so if you would like to uh, uh, to add your own rating to the uh, rating and review to the podcast, we would more than welcome that. And only so, five stars, yeah, of course, yes, yes. So, all right, John, you are our uh, coronavirus correspondent. Yeah. So uh, bring us up to speed on where we're at with the coronavirus. Yeah. So the coronavirus is sweeping across uh, the continent of Asia still. Yeah, um, you probably should not use that terminology. <laughs> that, that 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 I mean. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, so uh, it's still a really big deal in in mainland China. Uh, yeah. The Diamond Princess cruise ship, which is the second most coronavirus cases, is up in the 400s now. Yeah. Um, and which, they've sent the Americans back home, right? They're, I think they're being quarantined on military bases, I think if I remember so. correctly. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and uh, Taiwan, uh, which I'm going to here in a couple of weeks, yeah. uh, still only has 22 cases. So okay. uh, the trip is a go. Okay, excellent. That's good to hear. That's and good to hear. Uh, we were talking this week, if I do get corona and end up on a military base, I will Skype into the podcast, and that will be some excellent, excellent <laughs> yes. content. Yes, yeah. Speaking of getting our tech people on that, yes. Yeah. Uh, live from quarantine at <clears throat> at Andrews Air Force Base or yes. wherever you end up. Area 51, wherever, yes. they, wherever they decide to yeah, stay. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. As long as it's not Guantanamo Bay, yes. right? Yeah, so... In any case, the uh, this weekend's uh, w- in terms of the world of sports was uh, largely, I think, consumed by the NBA All Star Game. Yeah, and uh, although I didn't watch it myself, from what I understand, there's been some controversy around the dunk contest. That uh, word on the street, kind of the the buzz, is that Aaron Gordon was robbed again. That he 
lost the dunk contest, even though he shouldn't have. Uh, so and he has I, vowed not to enter the dunk contest again. Yeah. Uh, and his final dunk that he thought, and I think most of Twitter and humankind uh, <laughs> believe was was worthy of perfect scores was he jumped over Taco Falls. Yeah. Uh, who is seven foot five? Yeah, seven five, seven six, somewhere in there. Um, and uh, now he didn't completely clear him. Taco had his head leaned down, so he only jumped over when he was like seven three or seven two. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, and still impressive. Yeah, still impressive. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so he got robbed, and the other guy for uh, is he on the Miami Heat? Derek Jones Jr., I believe. Is that sounds right? right? Yeah. Uh, and his former teammate last year, Dwayne Wade, was a judge. So there's all conspiracy theories flying around. Yeah, the interesting thing about that, though, is the fact that um, it it appears that the judges were trying to manipulate the scores of the that. final yeah. round yeah. to make it a tie. And so they, they made a mistake. <laughs> they made a math mistake. So, um, you know, that shows the importance of math, I guess, that apparently— uh, they were incapable of arranging the scores properly to get the tie, and so they didn't intend for the contest to be over. Yeah, they wanted and, it to keep going. Yeah. That's too so that, funny. In any case, and the game itself had an interesting wrinkle. So the NBA has been trying to spice things up to uh, improve the quality of the product. Let's be honest. In, in, in the past years, it's been uh, not even a sort of— uh, rec league kind of, you know, goofing around in the backyard kind of game where it's just dunks and long threes. And there was still some of that in this, but it's interesting. Each quarter, based on the score, so Team LeBron, Team Giannis, they were each competing for money for a charity Mm -hmm. of their choosing. And so uh, quarter one went to uh, Team LeBron and got $100,000 for his charity that he had picked. And then quarter two went to uh, Giannis, Team Giannis. And so it's a great idea for the the All-Star game. Yeah, I think that's great. But then the other wrinkle was the fact that although the score in one sense reset each quarter for um, for the charity, they kept the cumulative total and then... What they did is they instituted something in basketball circles known as the Elam ending. So for the fourth quarter, instead of having just a normal 12-minute running clock, they determined, so based on the cumulative score up to that point, Team Giannis was winning, and they added 24 points to their point total. What was that what was that time? Is it just when the clock runs out or when there's three minutes left? Or what, what, at what point do they stop and say— Okay, we're adding 24 points. The whole fourth quarter. So there was no clock for the oh, there's fourth there's no clock for the whole, at all. the whole last quarter. Okay. So third quarter ends. Team Giannis was w- leading. They had 133 points. They added 24, Kobe, Kobe Bryant's Bryant. number. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the first team to get to 157 at that point wins. So it's kind of like, you know, pickup game pickup game at the Y or something. You, you played a 15, you played a 21, you played a, sure. played a 11. So, you know, most people who've played a little basketball in their life are familiar with that kind of thing. But the the idea behind it is it takes away the uh, incessant fouling at the end of a game. It takes away the sort of stall tactics so that you have to continue to score to win the game. And uh, this has been used in some other sort of 
lesser-known tournaments and that kind of thing. But this is the most high-profile use of this, what's called the Elam ending. It's called that because, if I remember correctly, the prof- there was a professor at Ball State hmm. who came up with this ending to basketball games because he was frustrated at seeing the end of games just turn into a foul shooting competition and stall ball. And so he created this ending, and it's sort of got gained a niche following. So it was instituted for the NBA All-Star game this year in the fourth quarter. And it did make for some interesting basketball, I think. I, I think it's at least, for the All-Star game, worth keeping. Any any chance they adopt it in the league widely? I've heard some talk on sports I've, radio I've heard about a little this. bit of talk uh, that perhaps maybe they should consider adopting it for overtime during the regular season. Oh. So, you know, obviously the NFL, they don't play a full quarter in uh, overtime. They play first team to score a touchdown uh, unless, you know, so each team gets the ball if the first team doesn't score. So in other words, there are modified rules to it. Sure. Same with soccer, right? Mm -hmm. You get to penalty kicks eventually where you stop playing with with a clock and it's just penalty kicks. Well, in soccer, you can also end in a tie. Yeah, well, which, which no, which is not an option here. No, we're not ending the All Star Game in a tie or an NBA game in a My tie. My goodness, could you imagine if a professional league ended the All Star Game in a tie? What a disaster that would be! Yeah, who who could who could fathom something like that? <laughs> Looking at you, Major League Baseball. Yeah. In any case, so I think it's I don't know, it's interesting, and it does create a little bit more drama sometimes at the end of games. So anyway, worth worth looking at, worth sort of. Let's keep an eye on that. I think there's some growing interest in that. And uh, and what else were you watching this weekend? What other sports? So I dipped into a little bit of the XFL. Okay. So spring professional football now, an attempt to satisfy the seemingly unquenchable thirst that Americans have for American football. Mm-hmm. And this was, I believe, weekend two, if I remember correctly. And part of what makes the XFL different are some of the rules. You've got the various uh, and sundry rule changes <laughs> that uh, the XFL has instituted to try to make things a little bit more interesting. Such as? Such as one of the more notable ones is the kickoff rule. Okay, and this is this is probably their most popular rule, right? Yeah, I think this this rule probably is the rule that has the best chance of the NFL looking at it and going, we like that, let's do it. Yeah. Because there's been— concern in a lot of concussions in in football that you have a play that's designed where you have very strong fast athletes getting a full head of steam running you know 30 or 40 yards before they're making contact with other big strong athletes who are moving at full speed as well and so there's major injury concerns and there's been attempts by the NFL to try to mitigate some of that so what the xfl does is the kicker still kicks off from the i think it's the 30 now yeah i think it is the 30 but his teammates line up on i want to say the opposite 35 yard line oh interesting um it might be the 30 i can't remember the exact yard line but then the returning team lines up five yards apart from them on the so if they if the kicking team lines up on the 35 or maybe it's the 30 the other team lines up on the you know the 25 or the 35 yards away from each other but they can't move until the person receiving the kick 
catches the ball. Oh, interesting. So when the when the returner catches the ball, then the blockers and the defenders can move. So they only have like a five-yard difference of distance, so you're not getting full-speed collisions. It's more like a regular play, but still the excitement of a return. And, exactly, yes. exactly. And so that seems to have uh, been popular, and I think that, that has a chance of catching on in the NFL because the NFL has actually talked about completely eliminating the kickoff as part of the game, which I think is a mistake. Yeah, I think that's an overreaction. Um, and I think that's that's how the XFL has legs long-term as yeah. a as a testing ground of new yes and inventive things for uh for the nfl yeah um, as long as it doesn't try to supplant the nfl and try to take right. over yeah i think it i think it's a really excellent place to try some new things uh baseball does this with a with a baseball league in in uh, the southern part of the right. united states they are experimenting with robot umpires this year uh strike robot strike zones those sorts of things yep uh as a way to work out the kinks, so to speak, and totally. try to implement eventually into the majors. Totally. And one other uh, note on the XFL that kind of distinguishes it from the NFL is the fact that they are giving unprecedented access to the fan. Yeah, that's been fun. To coaches, to players during the game, even the replay booth. You hear live what the replay booth folks are talking about. You hear live the officials' conversations when they huddle up and talk about, what did you see? I had 22 withholding. Oh, I had a better angle. I don't think he was holding at all, that kind of stuff. You hear those actual deliberations. You hear the coaches, and you get interviews with coaches and players mid-game, which is an interesting wrinkle, which I'm sure the coaches absolutely have to hate. Yeah. Greg Popovich would never stand <laughs> for like while the action is going. It's yeah. one thing between quarters, which is what the NBA does, and you're like, okay. And Greg Popovich, coach for the Spurs, notoriously absolutely rude and hates those interviews and uh, makes it clear. So in any case, those are some of the things that caught my attention. We'll maybe keep an eye on that as that develops to see what might be interesting uh, moving forward for the NFL and some of their rule changes. But Anything else on sports before you move on? Move on to. Uh... I don't think so. Uh, know that we're following the Astros scandal yeah. and everything that's going on. We're waiting for it to blow up a little bit more. We're we're waiting with anticipation. We're very hopeful <laughs> uh, that things get a lot worse so that we can talk about it and dig yeah. into it a little more deeply. But but know that we're watching that. Gotcha, gotcha. And and let's just say in the realm of sports, we are contemplating a an opportunity for listeners to participate with us in viewing of sports. Let's just leave it at that. A little tease for... Mm. Uh, we're, we're, we're in discussions. Yeah. High-level. High-level <laughs> discussions, yes. Power players involved for sure. So, Well, our last two episodes, we have talked about singleness, and then we moved on to marriage. And I... I think I had largely kind of concluded we were probably done along this stream yeah. of thought. And then uh, this weekend, I came across an article by David Brooks in The Atlantic that's entitled, let me get the title correctly here, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Yeah, that's pretty provocative, isn't it? Yeah, and since David Brooks is one of your man crushes. I do like David Brooks. <laughs> I figured... Yeah. This seemed like a natural sort of end to the—we could create a trilogy and make this the sort of the the singleness, marriage, and family trilogy of these three episodes of five, six, and seven. And this 
this article uh, kind of served as maybe a little bit of a launching point to talk about the area family. Yeah, and uh, a little bit on David Brooks. He's uh, a, he's a New York Times columnist traditionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think conservative, moderate, middle. We'd go center right. I yeah. think on him. Uh, very thoughtful, good mm-hmm. writer, uh, yeah. has been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, right. Got started with the Wall Street Journal, moved over to the New York Times. This article, however, is in The Atlantic. Um, and The Atlantic is known for long, long articles. So we'll link this in the show notes, yeah. but it is a it is a monster of it an is. article. It is, absolutely. I think, you know, sometimes on social media, when someone posts a link like this, it'll say like two minute read, five minute read. I think this one comes up as like a thirty two or thirty five minute read. So uh, this is something you probably want to get to when you've got some time to devote to it. This is not a, and it's not even easy to skim. Really, you really kind of have to devote a few minutes it, some time to the it. The Atlantic does something great where if you go to their website, they have uh, their SoundCloud right there, and you can hit play and listen yeah. to their articles, uh, which is what I did with this article. It was, it was wonderful. Gotcha. So let's uh, – you want to start with talking with this article and then branch out into um, biblical reflections and cultural observations? Uh, sure. If I was going to summarize the article, it would be something to the extent of uh, – America, the United States, the Western world, when it was really seemed to be functioning quite well, uh, was when uh, families were, you you basically had intergenerational housing. Mm -hmm. You had uh, children interacting with grandparents, maybe great-grandparents. They were all living under the same roof. Uh, And that through time, starting in the, I think the late 1800s, he goes back to. Yep. Uh, working up to the modern day, uh, we've segmented off into what he calls the nuclear family, the the husband, wife, couple of kids living in a house, basically separated from the rest of their extended family. Yes. Um, and he's saying this has broken down, for, for lack of a better term, the fabric of uh, our, our, our social networks. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that uh, what he... Part of the case that I think he persuasively makes is that in this shift from more of a fo- – when we think about family, the shift from thinking extended family to such a focus on the nuclear family or as George W. Bush would say, the nuclear family, <laughs> the, uh, the, the change that has come about is that the nuclear family came to be the central focus – when there were a set of cultural and societal factors that allowed it to work for a brief window, yeah. like in the 50s, into the 60s a little bit. There's like a window that he argues for that during this window, the nuclear family worked hmm. as sort of the, the foundation of, of society and culture. But the factors that made that sustainable and workable stopped being true. Uh, so those, those supporting features of society and culture that helped make the nuclear family a workable model no longer exist. And so as a result, the fact that we still are trying to make the nuclear family the, the sort of centerpiece of, as we think about family, when those cultural and societal pieces no longer exist that support it, 
helps explain why the family itself has been deteriorating in culture. Mm-hmm. And what are what are some of those factors they, that he listed? I'm trying to remember myself right now. Yeah, so you have, uh, when it comes to culturally, even though you had this focus on the nuclear family, you still had some connection with extended families. So aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, that sort of thing. And most Americans lived in a context where they lived in neighborhoods, and he kind of calls it the, the, the front porch life. Yeah. Where people in the afternoons and evenings would congregate on their front porches. They would interact with neighbors and had relationships such that the kind of relationships that used to be handled by extended families in previous generations were now covered by these sort of neighborhood networks or that even you had extended families living within the same ne- same neighborhood. Yeah. So grandma and grandpa might live three houses down or you know aunts and uncles might live two streets over, that sort of thing. And kids would run back and forth between the houses and there was this sort of shared mentality of we're working together to raise these kids and we see ourselves as a cohesive unit. We support each other when grandma and grandpa get old, we help out when... Joey needs a little bit of help because he, you know, lost his job. We pick up the slack there. Those sorts of support networks existed. And he's saying based on cultural and societal trends, those don't exist anymore. And so therefore those support structures are gone for the nuclear family. And I think he points out that – I believe he points this out or could have been in another article I was reading that uh, this was also a time in American culture where uh, really the husband worked – uh, mm-hmm. The wife stayed home, um, and this helped, for lack of a better term, thicken the uh, communal feel that you're talking about. This yep. this this uh, fabric of society that that we're all part of, um, and that has uh, shifted away where that where that doesn't really happen Correct. anymore. Uh, and some of that is, I think, economic realities. Right? Yeah. Um, following the fifties was, was immediately following World War Two. Europe was decimated at this time, you know, you know, so the United States was producing, 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 um, right. and was seeing economic gains like, uh, like, like nobody else in the world had ever seen at that time. And it was far more feasible for a man to get a job that mm-hmm. more than, that was more than enough to provide for the family's needs and well beyond needs into wants, yes. disposable income. So there was no perceived, the, the perception that a woman had to work outside the home to help support the family was not really there. Now, obviously, there were women who worked outside the home, but it it was much easier for a man to get a well-paying job where there was no perceived need for we need to have the wife work in in order to help just kind of make a general standard of living. And uh, so so at the end of the article, he presents some uh, solutions. one of the and he pre- presents this weave network that I've heard him present in a few in a few different areas of uh, of people in social circles that are in the same city that get together and do meals together mm-hmm. and interact and have um, have real life discussions about mm-hmm. what's going on and and those sorts of things. Do you do you find his solution to the problem here at the end of the article satisfying, helpful? So as I read through this, and he, you know, he builds the case along the way. 
he, he sort of exposes the problem, and then as he gets towards the solution, he's he's dropped the the, the little um, you know the the hints along the way of what some of the solutions he's going to propose are, and in one sense, I think his solution is absolutely correct mm-hmm. in that what he advocates for is this sense of family that extends beyond biology. Yes, that's a big piece of his, as he says. We need to be thinking about family in this sense. These that what replaces the breakdown of the extended family is what he calls, and he's borrowing this from anthropology, but this idea of fictive kinship, meaning that our our group of people that we consider family, it's fictive in the sense that it's not based on biology; it is chosen. Hmm. And so, as he keeps building the case towards this. All along in my in my mind, what is screaming out to me is, "That's the church." Yeah, I had the, I had the, the same response. Yes, <laughs> like what you're describing is what life in the church is supposed to be. Now, acknowledging it's not always that way, and the church doesn't always live up to that ideal. Absolutely, but as he's talking about people being involved in each other's lives, and you know, talking about this idea of having relationships where there, there was one. I think the the community he's talking about was actually maybe in in San Francisco. It's in in a tech area where there was a a young man who was in his like twenties, maybe he's single, but he's living in this sort of uh, apartment area complex where across the hall or something is this family that's got like a three year old kid, and this single man of 25, 26 is absolutely enamored with the fact that this three-year-old kid thinks he's awesome. (laughs) And I think, that's the church. Like, that's ideally what living in community in the church should be producing. And there are different forms of that. I'm not saying that all of us as members of a specific local church should suddenly try to live in the same apartment complex or, you know, build compounds out in the country with, you know, six, eight houses. Yeah, and, that's called a cult. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think as you're as you're reading through this, it is just striking to me that he is trying to, in essence, produce a—and this— I don't mean this term in in the loaded sense that it often has. He's trying to produce a secular version of what the church is supposed to be like. Yeah, and I don't, I don't mean secular in the highly negative sense that it's often used in terms of you know the, these kinds of discussions, but maybe a non-Christian specific form of this kind of community. Yeah, and I. My goodness, I probably get my uh, the the people I really enjoy reading. I give the benefit of the doubt probably too much, and um, I know that you know, but you know, David Brooks has had something of a. If you've read his most recent book, uh, The Second Mountain, which is the one thing I like this week, uh, he has something of a conversion experience, or is is along the path of conversion at some point. Um, I, I I don't know. I know you're looking at me skeptically right now. Well, no, we've had this discussion so, privately before where we had this on the mystery trip yeah. this past year when you were reading The Second Mountain, I yeah. think, right? And so, uh, and I had listened to a podcast that I believe it was Colin Hansen from the Gospel Coalition interviewed David Brooks on that podcast. Where, where David Brooks does go like, you know, some days I wake up and I don't think I can believe in the resurrection. Yeah. 
And so yep. even in that conversation, I think his spiritual condition, I, I think to be generous, and I want to be generous, I don't want to be skeptical, I would just want to say I think I am uh, noncommittal, and I, I am I am unclear where he's at spiritually. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Listeners don't know this. We are on opposite sides of the coins on David Brooks and Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, that's not that's not bad yeah, yeah I, I hadn't thought of it that way but that's a whole that's a whole another Where, conversation maybe. yeah maybe we'll break down david brooks and kanye west in the future but um, I, again i do think you're right he has had some sort of change in his life that has been pretty significant and dramatic yeah but i i don't think he he doesn't from what i understand he does not claim to be an evangelical no no he does not and i think that his position as a cultural figure deeply complicates his perception of evangelical faith and even I don't want to be generous that I, I can't help but wonder if there are some of those factors that make him hesitant to come out and publicly make statements yeah. where he might privately, if you had him in a private conversation, be more definitive about his faith commitments than he is perhaps willing to be in public statements. And I think I think that's why he doesn't mention the church in this article. Because I think I think he's using code and and alluding to it so that people like you and I will read the article and go, oh yeah, that's the church. But people outside will be like, yeah, you know, we need more social connection and social fabric. Where if he used the word church, they would just be, be kind of turned off by it. That, that's what I think he's doing, and that's how I'm reading him very generously. Yep, that's a generous reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not opposed to generous readings. I do think that uh, one thing to to consider here, and, and perhaps for me, this is just a question of strategy. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are yeah. strategies where your engagement with the public, depending on your position, I don't think, I am not one of these believers who's like, Anytime you get within sniffing distance of something related to the gospel, if you're a public figure, you better preach the whole gospel in that context. I am not that way at all. I think there's absolutely a place for the sort of conversations and the sort of presentations where it's you're exposing a need that is best addressed and understood by biblical Christianity. Yeah, I think there's absolutely a place for that. So my criticism here is probably one more along the lines of strategy than it is on substance. And that is that I think you could have included as one manifestation of it among the other non-church examples he gives. I think you could have included one as a, here's a church that is embodying this, yeah. that living and, this out, and, as one of multiple yeah. venues where you see this working out. And I think social scientists have gone there, right? Like, I think they've they've talked about healthy churches as being a, net, uh, a, a part of neighborhoods, uh, fabrics of society that, that, are, that are needed. Absolutely. But to me, it feels like, especially given his position within the larger media culture— a missed opportunity. Hmm. 
given the fact that the the steady drumbeat in the culture he lives in, in that sort of media elite culture, is pretty steadily negative towards the gospel, towards the church, towards traditional Christian views and worldview. And so it seems to me a missed opportunity, maybe I'll put it that way, a missed opportunity to present the church and the gospel in a positive light as one of multiple ways that maybe this looks uh, works itself out in a community. Yeah, I I, I think we for the for the most part agree uh, on that. I I think he's uh, I think like you said he's using a strategic move here in 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 not saying it. Yeah. So in any case, I think that when you this article I think begins a actually let me say one more thing before we maybe transition a little bit more to the kind of some biblical reflections on this article. I think that one of the things that I especially appreciated about this is the fact that he acknowledges that neither political conservatives or political progressives have the answer to this, that their their discussions of family are still so tied to the nuclear family that they either don't understand or recognize what's happening, or if they do, the proposals they make in terms of public policy miss it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think he talked about that maybe in two or three paragraphs, and that was, uh, I think, a really uh, helpful yeah. piece of his article. Yeah. I mean, in essence, it's conservatives don't—the policies that conservatives have towards this don't scratch where the itch is— and progressives are so fearful of being judgmental about any potential situations connecting with family and that kind of area that they have no policy at all yeah. towards it. Yeah. Although I did, I did find his uh, analysis of uh, progressive interesting where he says something to the extent of when surveyed uh, students who come from a progressive household – uh, mm-hmm. Asked if their parents would be upset that they had a child out of wedlock, they're like they'd freak out. Ninety-seven percent would freak out. Yes, I thought that was fascinating. And they they acknowledged, you know, the sort of survey results were something like seventy percent said it's not wrong at all for a child to be born out of wedlock. But then if you ask them how many of you would want to have a child out of wedlock, the numbers just plummet through the floor. Yeah. So there's this sort of we understand that culturally we're not supposed to in any way say that that's bad or wrong, but personally there's still this remnant of, I don't want to do that. Like that, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why that's not ideal at the best. Yeah. 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 So, but when it comes to thinking biblically about something like this, I'm just struck by the fact that there is so much here when you think about, you know, Jesus' teaching of the, uh, the new family of God that he is creating through his life and ministry and death and resurrection. You know, when you consider that there's the famous incident at the end of Mark 3 where he's teaching and he's interacting with people and word gets to him, hey, your, your mom and your and your family are out there and they want to talk to you. And he's like, you know who my family is? Who my brothers and sisters and mom? Like, it's the people who do the will of God. It's, it's, it's the people of God here. That is my primary family as opposed to my biological family. Hmm. And uh, 
and I know the answer to this, so I'm teeing it up for you, but uh, <laughs> what what does Scripture say about biological family? Like, how are we to think about a biological family? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to act toward them? You know, sure. what, are, what are some of those realities? Yeah, so you can obviously go to an extreme with, with either direction on this in terms of, you know, if you take what's said there in Mark 3, you can totally go to the point where you essentially neglect very clear biblical responsibilities that a person has towards their biological family. So you get into the pastoral epistles, and Paul's giving instructions about widows. And his first starting point is, where's the family? Like, if they have extended family, they should be caring for them. Yeah. And if you're one of those believers and you're not caring for a widow or someone as part of your extended family, like, that's on you. That shouldn't be the church's first responsibility if you are capable of doing it yourself as an individual connected to a biological family. Like, that should be on you to provide for your family. And in fact, one of the qualifications for leadership within the church as an elder is how you lead and care for your biological family. Yeah. So it's not like scripture's like, ah, biological family doesn't matter anymore. No, it matters a lot. But it also relativizes it in light of the larger importance of being part of the family of God. Mm -hmm. And that can often be a tension that you can feel within the Christian life. Sure. And I know for uh, for me and Kate, there's often that, and I think a lot of married couples and families, like there's that tension of how do we best care for our family, and yet how do we use our biological family as a means of grace to others— to bring them closer to an experience and encounter with God, whether mm-hmm. it's through hospitality, whether it's through uh, various forms of being involved in their lives, and that there are times where it is right for a person to sacrifice time with their biological family for some greater ministry or church purpose to help uh, care for the family of God. That, 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 that there are times where that's appropriate, yeah. And there might and there are times where it's probably not appropriate. Sure. And that's part of the tension of living in wisdom and walking by the Spirit. Yeah. Well, good, 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 good. Any any books you would recommend? Any anything on uh, the family? I'm racking my brain. I really can't think of of much on uh, the biological family. I can. I'm trying to think about family of God now as I'm as I'm processing. I don't have a go-to on this subject. Yeah. And some of that is the fact that uh, I think a lot of what is written about family can veer right into the family idolatry. Sure. Just like we talked last episode about marriage idolatry, that you can make your spouse an idol. You can absolutely make your children or anyone in your family an idol. You can make the idea of family an idol such that you— interact in a way that that has this sense of fortressing your family. Like, okay, our family, we have to protect it from any possible outside negative influences, and so it's all about protecting your biological family. And it's like, but you're not involved in the world at all in terms of reaching out to others, bringing others into your home, and uh, using the interaction of your family as a picture of the gospel. Yeah. Well, if you're out there listening, you're like, I know this book, I know this yeah, th- this shoot thing. It to us. Uh, yeah, at VNS Pod, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter uh, or the email is variousandsundrypodcast at gmail dot com. We'd love we'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so we're we're at that time where we we need to start uh, 
preparing for landing here. So yeah. tray tables up, seats in the upright and locked positions. and uh, Well, and let's pick an athlete because no one's ever worn the number seven before, right? <laughs> yeah. This was a easy one, right? We have we did not even talk about we this We haven't talked the about show, this yet. So. Uh, can I just... Can I just get the Ohio State segment of this? Yeah, go for it. Out yeah. of the way here. So, and and by the way, if you want to start a regular feature of famous Mets who've worn number seven or famous, you know, the, whatever number we're doing that week, or sure. Knicks or that sort of thing, even though they don't rise to the level of all-time greats, kind you, of just thing. to pander to my sure. non-audience. Hey, yeah. we, <laughs> we if the Big Ten Conference decided to expand and pick up Rutgers just so they could get into the New York market. I see no reason why we can't incorporate yeah. a weekly Knicks and I, also. Mets. I don't. I don't think that Rutgers thing has worked out well. I I'd have to look into that. I'm not sure. Money wise, I don't know. Money maybe, but but I oh athletically no. Uh, athletically certainly no, and I just don't know that New Yorkers are like oh yeah, gotta get me some Rutgers I know, football. But now they're in New York media markets with the Big Ten Network and other things and huge money. In any case. So when it comes to number seven, uh, famous Ohio State players who've worn it, you've got, uh, and this was actually a good number for Ohio State, Joey Galloway, Joe Germain, Chris Gamble, Ted Ginn, and uh, Dwayne Haskins, the recent uh, first-round NFL quarterback draft pick of the Washington Redskins. And just an interesting side note here, Ohio State actually has a kid on their roster named Seven Banks. Like but the Seinfeld he doesn't episode? wear number seven. Like the Seinfeld yeah. episode. Oh, I love that. Yeah, he's he's number seven, though it's spelled S-E-V-Y-N. But this year, finally, he's going to get to switch his number. No- he wasn't wearing the number seven, yeah. which seemed criminal, right? Yeah, he's got to wear seven. This year, he's going to get to switch to seven. So in any case, who are our at- professional athletes that we're really wrestling with here? Okay, uh, John Elway. Yeah. Uh, Famous uh, Denver Broncos quarterback uh, has a mm-hmm. fascinating tale about coming into the NFL as well. Yeah, uh, Mickey Mantle, uh, great New York Yankee, one of the uh, better baseball players that have ever played. Yes. Uh, Pete Maravich, uh, a great basketball player. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, um, still playing, sort of. Yeah, unclear. Yeah, right? unclear. Um, Major injury last year took him out for most of the season. Yeah, I think he's going to be back though. That's that's my understanding is he's going to be back in uniform next year. Anyway, um, but those are those are probably probably not Ben Roethlisberger. Probably John Elway, Mickey Mantle, and Pete Maravich are the are the three I'm wrestling over. Yeah, Pistol Pete Maravich. He revolutionized the game in terms of some of the uh, behind the back passes and trick shots and those sorts of things. That's kind of what he's known for. But what can be often lost in that is he was a an incredible scorer, hmm. especially in college. He was, I, I can't remember if he averaged, but I, I want to say he averaged close to 40 points a game in college before the three-point line. I was about line. to say, I think he played before the three-point line. And yeah. so it's it's remarkable. He was a, a rare talent. But when it comes to, historically speaking, uh, as we just acknowledge, we're not going to fill this list with New York Yankees. So uh, can we can we can we eliminate Mickey, Mickey? Mantle? From yeah, the- I was already thinking. I was already thinking John Elway. Yeah, uh, I'm leaning that way too. I'm leaning uh, that way too. So John Elway, back to back Super Bowls, retired when yes. out uh, one of the greatest ways possible. Yeah, um, and was also a great baseball player in college yes. as well. 
and kind of used his his sway in the NFL draft to say, well, I might go play baseball. That's right. And he was signed by the Yankees. He was signed by the Yankees. <laughs> so it's like we're getting a Yankee I anyway. Know. I know. Yeah. Much to our chagrin. All right. So we got to move on to uh, one thing we liked this week. So, All right. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, since we were talking about David Brooks this week, uh, The Second Mountain by David Brooks yeah. uh, talks about four commitments in life that, that we're all committing to. And uh, just a phenomenal read. And I, I always appreciate his writing. So that's that's what I'm... In light of our conversation about his article, that's what I'll recommend today. Gotcha. Well, as a follow-up to last week's very niche book, that was my one thing I liked uh, this week. Or more niche. Even more niche, <laughs> yes. So for Valentine's Day, my lovely wife got me a copy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which is the first book in the Harry yeah. Potter series. Not but, so niche. But the wrinkle is... There's a classics scholar who translated it into ancient Koine Greek. And you're loving that. <laughs> so this this scratches my nerd itch on a variety of different angles here. So that is uh, quite fascinating to me. It's the, the Greek is pretty challenging. Of course, obviously, he's having to make up some words here and there. And, but, uh, yeah, probably not a Greek uh, equivalent for Hagrid, huh? Well, I mean, you just transliterate that essentially, but you know, I haven't got to any points where he's uh, using some of the, uh, you know, the spells, right? So expelliarmus, mm. and you know, yeah, to see Latin come through in Greek is going to be fascinating. <laughs> yes. So, well, I think we have absolutely, by definition, yeah, we've em- been all embodied over the, place. the various and sundry ethos of this podcast, and so uh, until next time. The Lord bless y'all real good. Later. Later.